listening to Goal Line Extended on the Lacrosse Flash Podcast Network. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to Goal Line Extended on the Lacrosse Flash Podcast Network. Today is Friday, April 30, and I'm your host, Ryan Holtzbus. Glad that you could join us in the wake of Monday night's PLO College Draft, an exciting night as the league. Welcome 32 new players to one of the eight teams. Flashes. Dan Aresio will be joining me very shortly to talk reactions to those results. A few teams, notably with a handful of picks, did they use those to their full capacity, as mentioned in an article that Dan wrote for Lacrosse Flash. It's available on the site now, so make sure to go and check that out. But some guys that these head coaches might have reached for in this draft, some guys that might have slid farther than expected, whether early on or into the later rounds. We'll also talk some of the top picks of this draft. Dan standing by and will join us momentarily. And Harrison Silcox will be joining me towards the end of today's show as we look ahead to this weekend in college lacrosse. What looks to be the last weekend of the regular season for most of these teams ahead of conference championship season. The Big Ten actually holding their two quarterfinal matchups on Sunday, so something to watch for going into this weekend. And also, since we did not talk about last weekend's action due to our college lacrosse draft special, or our college draft special, excuse me, on Monday, we'll take a look back at some of the best uh, from last weekend's games uh, as teams fight for seeding ahead of those conference tournaments. Big show planned, and it does not stop there. After we're finished up here with Dan, Duke attackman, former Princeton attackman, the all-time leading scorer at Princeton in the second overall selection in Monday night's draft, Michael Sowers. He will be joining us as he gets set for the season finale against the North Carolina Tar Heels on Sunday and for the upcoming summer and beyond with the Water Dogs Lacrosse Club. I mentioned it in a tweet during the week. We knew what kind of turnover we'd expect on the Canyons roster, obviously being the expansion team. And after the early trades that Atlas head coach Ben Rubier made, we expected that team to look a lot different. But Andy Copeland adding what looks to be another starting attackman and Mike Sowers, a starting offensive midfielder. That should thrive in transition and three starting poles with the addition of Eli Gobrecht on Monday night. That starting attackman being my, uh, Ryan Brown, excuse me, to complement the selection of Michael Sowers here second overall. He'll be with us in a minute to talk about that as the 2021 offseason wraps up. But with that out of the way, I want to welcome in Dan Arrestia to GLE, lacrosse flash analyst and lacrosse insider to talk about Monday night's draft. Dan, how are you doing? I'm doing well, guys. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Hey, another big night, big night. Uh, for the college draft the other night, the league welcoming in the next crop of young talent after what was a condensed 2020 draft after COVID and last season getting canceled, which resulted in an extra year of eligibility for all players. Most seniors did take it, minus the few that we saw drafted in last year's two-round draft, and then the even fewer that we saw shine in last year's tournament. But a, a loaded pool, arguably one of the most loaded classes that we've ever seen ahead of a pro lacrosse draft and ahead of what should be a season with some of the deepest rosters that we've ever seen. But realistically, just over a month ago, out from uh, from opening weekend, the waiver period and trade window officially closed today, being Friday. We'll get to that in a second. But how many of these guys do you expect to crack one of these game rosters and see on the sideline or on the field week one in Gillette Stadium? Or in the case, I guess, for a few of these guys that might be busy the weekend before, whenever they're ready to go, how many do you expect to see on the field in Boston? You know, it's tough to say. It's kind of a team-by-team team thing, right? Like, you know, if, if we're talking about, like, the Atlas, where you have a you have a serious roster rebuild underway this offseason with a lot of guys being traded out, a lot of picks coming in, um, for them, I think you could see a fair amount of their college draft picks there in week one. They're, they're, they're probably going to be looking to, you know, and, and Ben Rubio is going to be looking to get these guys involved right away. Certainly Teat with the first overall pick, but, you know, Docs, I think you can see week one. 
Um, Jake Carraway has got a spot out there, I think, week one. He's got a good shot to make a roster. I think both those short stick D middies they took in Logan and Dirth make sense to have on the field in week one. And then Arceri, it really depends maybe when you look on matchup and and the other guys you're going to have out there. Do you think you need a change of pace for Baptiste or not? Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? You know, I think Arceri that late was a good death pick, but is he going to be on the roster week one? I think it's probably tough to say. Um, so for a team like the Atlas, I think you could see a lot of their picks on the field. For a team like, you know, like the Whips, where we're, we're probably drafting for, for depth in most spots, I think you will probably see Cursed out there. But, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Squires or, or Nick Grill um, weren't on that game one roster in week one. Um, I think those are guys that'll be PLL players at some point, but right now, if you're on the whip snakes and you're not, and you're not a defensive player of the year kind of guy, then maybe you're not starting for their defense. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a team by team thing. I think there's a good percentage of these guys though, who were drafted because they fill a need for the team that took them, right? There wasn't a whole lot of just give me the best guy on the board. It was, this is what I need. I'm taking this player to fill that need. And uh, if you're going to draft that way, it means you're going to use the guy you drafted. You don't draft for need and then not use the player you took to fill it. So, um, you know, I think for the teams that really were out there doing that, you know, like the, the Chrome as well, taking JT, now that we know that um, that Rigney won't be available for them this summer. So, you know, that's a need filled. JT, I imagine, will be out there week one. Needs definitely filled here in this college draft. And as you mentioned, too, with the Whipsnakes, I mean, we were talking about Jared Connors possibly falling to seven. I, he wouldn't even start on the Whipsnakes if, if that was the case, if he was to have fallen. But definitely some teams picking for need. Picking, I really, really can't even say for need because these teams really don't need much. They're already so talented. But obviously picking to fill holes here ahead of training camp and ahead of the season. An absolutely loaded pool. And there's still some guys that you could make an argument for when it comes to making a team roster. But they'll join the group already in that waiver pool of players ahead of the season. And like I mentioned before, the waiver wire in the trade window both closed today, Friday, April 30. And we're actually recording this segment Wednesday evening. So most likely going to have some moves go down between now and Friday. Already saw a few right before we started here. And we'll get to anything that we missed on Tuesday. But signs that the offseason is starting to wrap up as we look back at the college draft in the rearview mirror and look ahead to the season. But related to that, we're not entirely sure when these final rosters are due, the original roster number announced being 25 before the season starts. Hopefully we'll be hearing some more soon in regards to that. Make sure to follow the cross flash on social media for all the latest news and updates. But Dan, earlier this week, we got that information about the waivers and trades uh, that, that, that deadline uh, is today. We actually had a conflicting report from the PLL website itself last week saying that that date might have been pushed back to mid-May, but that does not look to be true. We also learned that teams will be allowed to bring up to 30 players to training camp, which will be sometime in May. What else do you know in regards to how these rosters will be finalized at heading training camp, and how do uh, how does the trade and waiver processes, uh, you know, how that will operate into the 2021 season? Well, you'll have you'll have like you said, you'll have the 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 transfer window, the the player movement window, you know, that captures both waivers and trades is done on the 30th. Um, that's usually in like mid-afternoon. Um, I think you might still see some moves before then. You know, like you had mentioned, there's some moves kind of happening. We saw earlier today the Woods uh, sent Tyler Dunn to the player pool. Um, he's a guy I actually could think could help some teams. I, I tweeted the fun McCannons I'm picking up Tyler Dunn immediately. They could use some midfield help, and he's a versatile guy who's, you know, he's versatile enough that Coach Nat was toying with the idea of giving him a pole in the bubble. Like he played – 
with a pull for the U19 team when he was much younger. So, you know, a guy like that, when he becomes available, if you're a team that needs midfield help, you grab him. So I think, you know, with, with the sort of the bloat that just happened with rosters, with college guys joining, um, there will be some movement back to the player pool as teams decide, am I going to play my young guys? Am I going to play my vets? Do I have room for all these guys? Um, do I want to try somebody else different at camp that I want to make room for that's in the player pool? So um, even though we're getting close there, I think, you know, we're, we're kind of still, there's a good chance of seeing some movement. And then I think the window, I, you know, I'm not positive. I'm pretty sure the window opens up again. Um, I think it's July. I think they open it back or, you know, it closes usually week six of the regular season is its last week being open, but that's how it was in year one. And the year, you know, the, the week to week thing is a little bit different now and that they're not necessarily playing every weekend. There's more buys built in because there's more teams and COVID complicates, but um, you'll have sort of that month and a half from the opening of the season where trade window is open and movement is allowed. And then it'll, it'll close up again as we, you know, teams start looking for the, set those guys that are going to be your, your playoff roster kind of team. Absolutely. I, th- I believe looking at it, uh, I glanced at it earlier today. I believe the waiver window and trade deadline or the trade window, they both open the week or the Monday, I believe after week one. Yeah. And then I would imagine as you're saying, trade window closes somewhere in the middle of the season waivers sometime in August before the playoffs. So yeah, gearing up here before uh postseason play. But the PLL laying out its plans and in-season deadlines for roster and player movement as we wrap up this offseason. We'll have to wait and see how many of these guys drafted the other night remain on a roster after training camp. All right, let's talk about some of these teams and picks in particular. We'll go through a few of them, as there were a few teams that we focused a lot of our attention on the last few weeks. The Atlas being one of them, obviously holding all those uh, draft picks, the first Overall pick, the conversation in the days and weeks leading up to Monday night was being whether it would be Sowers or Jeff T. It looked like since last year's draft that it would be Sowers, but as we all know, Rubier decided to go with T at one. But something that I said in the lead up to the draft, which was uh, that those selections at 8, 10, and 11, they might be even more important than the pick at uh, one overall. Eight coming from the Cannons in the Rabel trade, which Rubier used on UVA midfielder Docs Aiken, and then he got 11 straight up with the War Dogs for Ryan Brown, which gave Rubier back-to-back selections to get Georgetown attackman Jake Carraway, a guy that played for Rubier at the high school level, and then Danny Logan, a short-stick defensive midfielder out of Denver. And then the third round, Rubier landed Syracuse short-stick D-Midi Peter Durth. And in the fourth, as you said before, Penn State face-off specialist Gerard Arceri, who might be able to serve as Trevor Baptiste's backup this season and going forward. Dan, what do you like? Uh, what do you not like from this draft and these selections by Coach Rubier as he wraps up what was a very busy offseason and a very important offseason for him and his team, not just for this season, but really in terms of seasons to come as well? Yeah, you know, I think that I think the Teat pick is great. I think, you know, they, they have guys who can be primary ball carriers and Teat doesn't need to be one to, to drastically impact a game. He's so smart and he's so like calculating when it comes to taking a defense apart that he can find the way where he will best hurt you. And he can do that as well as anybody on the cross. So, um, you know, and I think you also heard coach Rubio or, you know, talking, talking to you guys talk about his experience at world championships and his level of, you know, leading team Canada in points as a sophomore in college shows you that, that this is a guy who's basically a pro already as you draft him, he's played against pros and been very successful the idea of, of having any kind of risk associated with the pick is kind of eliminated by that. You can feel bit, feel really good about taking him. Um, 
but you know, it's it's you have the first pick in the draft. You're going to get somebody, especially in this draft, that's that's going to change the future of your franchise. So um, T pick is great. I, I like the Docs pick a lot. Um, I think you know this is a team that could use some midfield help a little bit, especially with a two-way guy like Docs. Um, you know, we we talked a little bit in Twitter Spaces before. The knock on Docs has always been that he doesn't pass all that well, or he's not that great a theater out of his dodges which, you know, is is not necessarily something I don't think that's going to be all that hurtful to him and not something that is so bad that it would it would lead you to knock him down into the second or third round or something. At the end of the day, this is still a, a, a very big, strong, athletic midfielder who can get his own shot, who can score from two, who, you know, he doesn't need you to set a ton of picks for him to beat his man. Um, you know, and if you play him out there with guys like Romar and Costabile, Docs is going to get shorted and, and he's, he can beat a whole lot of shorties. So, um, you know, I, I think that's a really, really good pick there who was you know, a, a desperate need for them with that kind of midfield help. He, he fits in really nicely to the spot that's vacated by Rabel, right? Very similar players. Um, you know, Rabel is obviously an all-time great. Docs is not an all-time great yet, but it's very similar play styles, I think, is with, with a guy like Docs. So, you, you know, you trade Rabel, you get your younger, you know, Rabel that's right out of school and you feel good about that. Um, the pick that might've been a little bit of a reach for me was, uh, Danny Logan. You know, I thought, um, Ryan Tarafenko still being available. He was my top rated short stick defensive midi on the board. I think he was just about everybody's because he does so many things. Well, he can, you know, play wings for you. He'll take the occasional, he's taken faceoffs at Ohio state. He plays on the offensive end for there. And it's, and it's not like he's just some second line midi trying to fit in. He can beat a man off a dodge. So, um, you know, I thought somebody with that level of versatility and that short stick D-Midi pedigree where he can guard most guys in the league, I think a lot of, you know, he can win a lot of short stick D-Midi matchups for you, um, would be a better fit for the Atlas. But, you know, Danny Logan is still, I think he's listed at like 5'11", like 200. Like this is a stout, strong, physical D-Midi who causes quite a few turnovers for Denver's team. If you look I, th- I think he's like in the top two or three on, on Denver's team right now and cause turnovers as a shorty. So um, his, that sort of physical aggressive style is, is a good one to have in the PLL too. You've seen other guys, you know, play successfully trying to do things that way. Guys like Bernhardt or Ty Warner can play like aggressive, strong, physical short stick D-Midi. Those guys are, are successful. You know, we saw Pat Harbison this past season, you know, in the top three in the league and cause turnovers. So I think he's kind of in that mold of guy. And if that's what you're looking for, then Danny Logan is the one you're going to want ahead of all the others. Ruby, you're landing back-to-back defensive midfielders to bring with him to training camp, or I should say to be safe in case one or both are still playing. You'll have them both on his pre-training camp roster. They'll both uh, complete um, Dirth and uh, Logan. They will both compete with Jake Richard and Kevin Understein while T and Caraway join what is becoming a very crowded attack group with Eric Long, Chris Cloutier, third overall entry draft selection, Dan Bucaro, and then Mark Cockerton, Brendan Sunday, and James Pinnell. Going into Monday night's draft, uh, I didn't expect us to be talking about the Water Dogs today as they only had three selections after that Ryan Brown trade. Uh, but at number two overall and then a pick in rounds three and four respectively, we knew that whoever it was that fell to two would probably be taken. That ended up being our next guest, Michael Sowers. And then when you think about it, it's not like we were expecting anything crazy here in the third or fourth round. Like if Jeff Trainer and Ethan Walker was what we got from the Water Dogs here in round three and four, we probably talk about the Water Dogs next week with the offseason wrapping up today. But Andy Copeland did something that turned some heads when that third round pick uh, arrived, 18 overall. He sent that to the Archers 
for defenseman Eli Gobert, which in my opinion might be even more of a steal than Ryan Brown for 11 overall. But now you look at their draft results, I guess you can say, quote unquote, after that trade, the only trade of the draft. They were only left with two selections in Sowers and Ethan Walker in the fourth round. But you can also look at it this way. Sowers in round one, Brown in round two, Gobrecht in round three, and Ethan Walker to close it out in round four. That's the best draft, if you ask me. And I'm not really sure it's close. But what do you like about the Water Dogs edition of Gobrecht, along with the entry draft editions of Randall and Burns? Gobrecht, a guy that has proven at the pro level that he can go one-on-one with some of the best attackmen in this game. Yeah, you know, I, I think the way you just described it is the way to describe the Water Dogs draft, right? Like, teams got four picks, four rounds, so everybody gets four picks, and you do what you want with them. The Water Dogs spent theirs on Michael Sowers, trading for Ryan Brown, trading for Eli Gobrecht, and drafting Ethan Walker in the fourth round. Who can play for that? He could be a week one player for that. So, you know, I, I absolutely love what Coach Copeland did here. I thought this was a great draft for the Water Dogs. Um, I think Sowers playing out there with shooters like Brown and, you know, now Ethan Walker – is, is going to be, you know, an opportunity to really see a lot of defenses get put in tough spots to try and recover to shooters like them. Um, I think the defense they have in place now of, of you know, it's, it's, it's a serious makeover from last year's defense, right? Last year's defense had some organizational issues. Um, you know, their, their, their shorties weren't the best, um, you know, the, but there were times, like, if you go back and you watch – the water dogs play the chrome you'll see a defense that was very much getting to know each other and and learning to play together and had some communication breakdowns so i think when you add guys like burns who's versatile and is a outstanding help defender he might have been the best help defender in that entry draft randall who's that physical you know can win his cover matchup um, against some very good players he spent some seasons now guarding lyle thompson so you know, he's, he's got the pedigree of guys who can step in against the best in the world. You add now Eli Gobrecht, who's also, like, very physical, and if he's guarding, you know, your, the, the second attackman out there, then I think you're doing very well with that matchup. And then, you know, you, you're really doing a lot more things that are, that are going to be able to, you know, you're going to be more physical. You're going to be meaner at the point of attack. Your slides are probably going to be a lot better than they were last year, and you know, this team still has uh, Chris Sabia out there, who is, you know, a high-round pick in uh, in our college draft a few years ago. So um, the Water Dogs' defense, to me, jumps off the page as, as getting a real makeover this offseason and doing a lot better. I think I would have liked to have seen the Water Dogs maybe um, get another look in net uh, at somebody beyond Cipriano and, um, and DeLuca to see, you know, if they can do better than those guys. Those guys weren't great last summer. Um, but – you know, that said, I think putting this much stronger defense in front of those guys is going to put them in a position to be much more successful than they were in year one. They got to hang out to dry a little bit here and there, and, you know, they're doing the best they can. But, you know, if, if a defense is, is giving up shots that they shouldn't be giving up that are high percentage, in the pros, you get punished. So, um, you know, I, I really like the Water Dogs offseason. You know, this, the, adding Mikey Schlosser as well, um, you know, and, and – the only pieces they added another face-off man today. I think I saw something on the waiver wire where they mm-hmm. are adding some face-off depth behind Withers. Um, and really, what they gave up is is Brody Merrill, which I think honestly, I mean, you know, it's it's not a knock on Brody. He's going to go into the Hall of Fame the minute he's eligible. He's probably the best to ever pick up a long stick, but he's not the player he was, you know, five ten years ago. So you know, you you lose Brody, you lose Drew Simino, who was good for you last year, but you still have Withers. You still feel okay at the face-off X. And you lose Drenner, but you add Ryan Brown and Ethan Walker. So you probably feel okay about losing Ryan Drenner. So, you know, I, I think the Water Dogs have 
filled the gaps that they lost in expansion and improved their roster at the places that they needed to, as well as anybody in the league. Andy Copeland looking to field a much different uh, defensive unit in 2021 than in 2020 alongside Team Canada, LSM, Ryland Reese. And with these three additions on offense, Brown, you mentioned Mikey Schlosser, now Sowers expect the Warlogs offense to look much different as well in 2021, especially here, as we're saying, after adding Gobert. I was out here uh, on Monday claiming I wanted the Warlogs to trade down from two, get some more draft picks in the second round. I don't know what I was thinking. Andy Copeland. <laughs> This is the reason why Andy Copeland gets paid the big dollars here as head coaches, and we do not, or I should particularly say I do not. That's that's what we should leave it as. Uh, yeah. Moving along in this draft, we'll be talking much more about the Chrome, Redwoods, and Archers on Tuesday's show as we get back to our regular Tuesday, Friday show schedule. But just to breeze over those three teams right now, Chrome selected defenseman JT Gallas-Harris, third overall, after learning of Tom Rigney's summer commitments with the military that Dan mentioned before. Foster Huggins was also recently placed on the holdout list, so Gallas-Harris becomes the first pull off the board, and he was followed by a guy that I think you can make a pretty reasonable argument for to go uh, at three as well. Ryan Tarafenko, he falls to 12 and is the second defensive midfielder off the board, and that was welcomed uh, by a little laugh there by Coach Sudan as he made that selection. The Redwoods, who we knew coming into this draft had a need at faceoff, they ended up landing two in TD Erlin at fourth overall, one of the best already to ever play the position. And then with that last selection of the draft, St. Laurent selected Notre Dame's Charlie Leonard along with UVA midfielder Charlie Bertrand at the end of round three and Syracuse midfielder Jamie Trimboli of the middle in the middle, excuse me, of round four. And as for the Archers, Chris Bates made the only move up in this draft uh, after LSM. Jared Connors fell to him at five, and Trey LeClaire fell to 13. The last uh, of those three offensive midfielders, those top three offensive midfielders off the board. Bates then made the only move of the night. He traded Eli Gobrek to the Water Dogs for the 18th overall pick, which he used on midfielder Jeff Trainer out of UMass. And after talking with Chrome head coach Tim Sudan last week, it looks like that was a pretty smart move for Bates if he really wanted Trainer as Sudan. A UMass guy himself was probably going to take Trainer there at 20 before Archers uh, picked again at 21. Sudan would end up settling for North Carolina midfielder Justin Anderson. But then after that trade to close out the Archers draft, faceoff specialist Connor Gaffney out of Lehigh goes 21st overall to compete at camp with Stephen. Kelly. So a quick rundown there for those three teams. We'll be talking much more about them as well as the back-to-back -back defending champs on Tuesday. But let's move on to the chaos, another team we had our eyes on coming into this draft as and uh, as the draft unfolded. Andy Towers with six selections, including two at the end of round two and then another two at the middle of round three. He started off the night selecting Penn State attackman Mac O'Keefe at six, the NCAA's Division I all-time leading scorer. He then found his backup faceoff man in Kyle Gallagher at 14, another midfielder in Tanner Cook at 15, who was the fourth offensive midfielder off the board. And then one of the best value picks in this draft with Kyle Thornton falling all the way to 22, Ryan Smith then taken towards the end of the draft. And then Maryland's Jared Bernhardt, a lock-in finalist for the Tawarton Award. He's drafted 19th overall after making the decision to pursue Division II football this fall, which makes him unavailable for the summer, but Towers able to stash him away for the future. Kind of a surprise to see only one Canadian taken in this draft uh, where Towers had six picks. But what do you like about the guys he's bringing in, especially Thornton joining this defensive unit? And then Mac O'Keefe, as Austin Owens, uh, Austin Owens has been saying a few times, the closest thing to a Canadian without the actual passport, O'Keefe coming into play alongside Josh Byrne, Curtis Dixon, Austin Stotts, and a few other pieces that uh, the Chaos have offensively. 
Yeah, I mean, you can already see Mac O'Keefe in some of those nation books or those, you know, that, that sort of that same pick down motion they even run at Penn State, right? Where they just plant him on the lefty wing and put him in that two man game and and make defenders make hard choices where if he gets a shred of daylight, he needs, you know, milliseconds to get the ball off. And uh, I think I saw Keeg say goalies, if he puts it on net, goalies save it like less than 40% of the time. So, um, you know, he's he's as lethal as it gets. And the the PLL, you know, the PLL game is, is one where that kind of player who can run out of that, again, that same kind of pick down motion that we've seen at Penn State is going to make him comfortable right away. Um, and with playing with those players who can get him the ball in tight spaces like that so he can just catch and snap a shot off is is good for him. O'Keefe's not going to be out there like ISOing guys and running by poles to shoot his own shot because that's not what his game is. And what's what's great here is that's not what the chaos game really is either. So um, I love him from a fit point of view. Um, you know, the Gallagher pick to me was, you know, it's Gallagher's a great faceoff man. I think with the chaos having already added Max Adler and then looking at the rest of their roster there's a lot of pieces they're going to, I think, want to try and get in the mix on that offensive end. I could see them wanting to dress just a, a whole ton of shorties every week. Um, and I think to do that, you might be looking at weeks where you only dress one faceoff guy. So with Adler on the roster, I thought maybe a little further down, uh, Coach Towers would be looking at, you know, a faceoff man to spell Adler on a week here or there, or even if he's going to dress two, you know, to, to, to have somebody else. But, um, you know, I don't think it hurt his – drafting for the rest of the night at all because he's still got a lot of players that are really good and are a great fit for him um you know the Bernhardt pick i am 100 percent convinced that, that the towers made it so stagnant it couldn't i'm certain that if this had gotten to stags he was taking jared Bernhardt and stashing him I, it just seemed like that was that was destiny so you know i i think uh towers doing that and i i wrote that the chaos were and the whipsnakes were really the two teams in a position to be able to spend a pick on Bernhardt, right? The Whips already have a loaded roster. They can afford to just take some depth guys that won't play right away. The Chaos have a very, very strong roster, and they have six picks in this draft. So if you, you know, if you'd spend one of your six on a guy who is you already know is not playing for you this summer and maybe plays for you next summer, maybe not. But if he doesn't, you probably still feel really good about the offensive players you came away with. I think that's an okay risk to take. Um, and I think it made a lot of sense for Towers to do it. Um, Thornton, like you said, is, is I think great value that late. He is, um, one of the better communicating and talking and like organized defenders in, in this draft. And as good as some of the chaos pulls are with guys like Newman and, and, you know, they'll have Rowlett and hopefully they'll have Johnny Serdick this summer. Um, you've got great cover defenders there. You've got guys who are physical, who are mean. What you need is uh, maybe that voice on the field with them to get things a little more organized. There were times last year where, Things just got a little helter-skelter for them, and, and Blaze saw a bazillion shots last summer. He made 30 more saves than the next goalie on the list than Burnlor, and, and he was, you know, making like 20-something saves a game. You know, it's it's great that he's making those saves. You don't want your goalie to have to do that. You don't want to be in a position where if Blaze doesn't save 25 shots, we might lose. Like, so I, I think having Thornton to keep things defense organized and to work on cutting down the number of shots that Blaze sees every game, or Dylan Ward, you know, whoever, whichever goalie they decide to go with, um, the number of shots that those guys see, you cut down on those shots, and you limit them to lower quality shots, then uh, then I, I think Thornton's a guy who's going to help you do that. So I was really, really enjoyed that. And, I, you know, 
I've said Tanner Cook is, is perfect fit for the chaos. Big, physical, is going to crush it out of the inverts in two and three man games from the low wings. Like he's 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 might as well already be wearing a chaos jersey at Carolina. Very excited to see what these uh, six additions for the chaos uh, bring to the table this summer for Andy Towers. Hoping to uh, he's trying to get back to the championship, trying to win that championship. As you mentioned, the Whip Snakes. It was probably one of those two teams. I wouldn't have been surprised. I don't think if. Stagnita were to go with Bernhardt at the end there, round two. That's where I think we were thinking, end of round two, beginning of round three, being that he is a Tawarton finalist. We'll probably see him in a year or two in the PLL, but Andy Towers jumping on him and stashing him away there at 19. The last team that we will talk about today is the Cannons. Only two selections in this draft to finish off expansion after sending their first-round pick to the Atlas in the Paul Rabel trade and then their third-round pick for attackman Andrew Q, but Coach Quirk selected defenseman Jack Keelty out of Notre Dame at the top of round two at pick number nine, and then at the top of round four, attackman Stephen Rafus out of Syracuse. Dan, the pick at nine makes a ton of sense. Keelty, the best pull on the dra- uh, best pull on the board at the time, one of the best in this class, and especially after hearing the news that Curtis Corley probably won't be available this summer, the selection became even easier there of Keelty. But the Rafus pick surprised you. Why is that? Yeah, you know I. I- I've, I've repented for my Stephen Rafus underrating for, for years, I guess. I've been calling Rafus. I, I always just kind of called him. And I was like, I think he's just okay. Like, he doesn't ever make, like, a, a play that gets me off the couch. And I'm like, wow, that guy's incredible. He doesn't ever really do a whole lot wrong. He's just, you know, he's a nice piece for Syracuse. Okay. Um, this year he has really elevated and I, I think shown you a lot, a, a lot of flashes of, of those plays that'll get you off the couch, right? He's getting his own shot more. He's winning matchups. He's making a smart play all the time, but his best strength is is really his vision and his ability to feed to, to spots, right? You've seen a lot of times this year where Rafus has his man hung up in front of the goal and he's finding players, you know, with lightning quick decision-making with quality feeds that are getting finished for goals. And, you know, that pedigree of player, putting that person on an attack line with, you know, Lyle Thompson and Bryce Wasserman, are you, are you taking the ball away from Lyle and Bryce so that Stephen Rafis can throw the feeds? I don't know if that's something I would, I would have in my, you know, in, in my scheme. Um, so that pick surprised me a little bit. I don't know if he's a guy you can run out of the, run out of the box right away. Maybe you can, you know, Ryan Drenner was running out of the box early on in his career for the Florida launch. So. Maybe they try and do that with Rafus and play him out of the midfield. They certainly, you know, could could use a little midfield help. So, um, yeah, the Rafus pick to me was maybe something where, you know, it's it's a little bit of a depth pick, and and you see if you have weeks where you could you could try him out, or um, you know, if you lose some guys to to injuries, or if guys aren't available for some reason that we don't know yet, then you have him, and and he's a nice piece to have. So, you know, from the from the is he going to help me week one standpoint, I don't know if that's Rafus, and I thought the Cannons would be in a position where they'd be drafting guys that I would expect to be like, that guy is a lock in week one. Like Keelty is going to be out there in week one. They need a guy like him on the field. I don't know if, I don't know if Rafus is going to fit the bill for that. We'll see how that, um, how that shakes out. But we you know with, with the cannons only having two picks and taking these guys, they're also kind of in the position now where they can over the next, you know, day or two or until this waiver wire closes, they can see if other teams maybe drop some guys, you know, like we just saw with Tyler Dunn and, you know, like I said, if I'm them, I'm snapping up Tyler Dunn on the second because I think he's an upgrade for me in the midfield. I think he's a guy who can help me. And maybe some other teams, as they make room for younger guys, 
you know, make players available and the cannons can, can reap the benefits of that and grab some guys out of the player pool that they think can help them that get released from other teams, you know, in, in the wake of this draft happening. Now that teams have a better idea of exactly who they have and where things stand. So, um, you know, the cannons might be positioning themselves to do that a little bit. We'll see how their roster shakes out, you know, as, as we get towards camp. A lot of these teams getting a better idea of where they stand, what their rosters look like. And as you're saying, I mean, these rosters are full. Uh, the number I think they have to get down to is 25. There's teams right now that are up in over 30. So, like, we're going to see guys become available here over the next few weeks as we near training camp out of, you know, once we get out of training camp. So, definitely going to see some players become available. We might see some movement, obviously, with that waiver uh, period then opening for the season after week one. Dan, appreciate you joining me as we take a look back at Monday night's draft. Always love your insight as we break down these results and look ahead to training camp and the season. Before I let you go, there are a few notable guys that went undrafted. There were also no goalies selected, as we sort of predicted, but of all the available undrafted players, and then with the new dates during the season, the waiver wire opening the Monday after week one, do you expect any of these undrafted names to get on a roster at some point this season? Well, it's tough because, you know, I, I'm now of the state of mind where unless you've already played like a million years of college lacrosse, if you didn't get taken and we thought you might, I am taking that as a sign that you're going to be in college again next year. Like, yeah. I am immediately thinking, all right, Gibson Smith, Logan Wisnowskis, Nakai Montgomery, you guys are all going to be in college next year. Or there's, there's, you know, I, that's, that's the only way I can understand it. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, a guy like Ryan McNulty from Loyola, I thought might get a shot, but the trouble is that LSM and the PLL is just so, so loaded. Like it's just so tough to find a spot. You know, it's, it's, it's really like after goalie, it's that position where I just don't know how you can supplant some of these guys and get some time, you know, goalie lefty attack and LSM are so, so loaded that, you know, it's, it's really tough. So McNulty is, he's great on ground balls. He's got some transition skills. He's got a nice handle and he can, he can play some solid defense. I don't know, you know, if his, if his quickness and his, his speed maybe was up to, um, what PLO coaches might be looking for right now. So that's, that might be a reason he didn't get drafted. I thought the water dogs, or I think the water dogs may still, I, like I said, I think it behooves them to maybe grab, um, you know, a McElroy or a, uh, or a Jake Porter and, and see where it goes. Um, you know, if Adler comes out, I think Adler can go back to, can go back for another year, but, um, if he's available, you know, some he's, he's in that group as well. And, and you can, you know, just try one of those guys out, see if they're better or, or if you like them better than, than Cipriano or DeLuca. Um, but most other teams, even other teams that had a backup need, you know, they, they probably feel okay about where they are. You know, maybe the Cannons want to bring in another guy. You know, I, I think Cork's got his starter in Morocco. He loves Morocco. It's been his goalie forever. But, you know, if, if you want to have a competition for the backup spot, maybe the Cannons add a guy and, and see what you get. But, um, you know, for the most part, if you're not one of, one of those type guys where you definitely run out your eligibility, I'm assuming you're probably going back to school. And the guy you mentioned, Ryan McNulty, I believe I read somewhere that he has another year of eligibility for like medical school or something. So maybe that also played into it there with him not getting selected. Who knows? Obviously, with that extra year of eligibility, adding a little bit of a little hectic to uh, our uh, kind of how who we thought was going to get drafted. Obviously, just last year was a much different animal. Yeah. What did you say? Said it's just loading up next year's draft. Next yeah. year's draft is getting more. Oh stacked. yeah, just, just like last year did to this year. I mean, last year was nothing that we expected in terms of the guys getting drafted. Obviously, 
set us up for this year, which was a phenomenal draft. And then I guess guys that even slipped. I mean, there's even the the conversation that guys that get drafted or that got drafted, I should say, in the third, fourth round, they might not even make a 25-man roster with how, with how tight yeah. these rosters are. So guys that didn't get drafted, hopefully they're in next year's draft or maybe we see them at some point here down the line. Dan, appreciate you again. And as always, thank you for joining us. For everyone watching and listening, make sure to follow Dan on Twitter at Dan Arestia, always breaking and tweeting about all the news that you will need to know in the world of lacrosse. And sit tight as Duke and Water Dogs attack me. Michael Sowers will be on the other side joining me next. Welcome back to the show. You are watching or listening to Goal Line Extended on the Lacrosse Flash Podcast Network. We are glad that you are here, hopefully enjoying the show. And if you are, make sure that you are subscribed and following our accounts. And obviously, Lacrosse Flash as well for all the latest lacrosse news and analysis. Joining me next is one of the most electrifying young players here in the game of lacrosse right now. A four-year starter while at Princeton, he set the program record for points as a freshman in 2017, and he would go on to break and reset those marks over the next two seasons before leading the NCAA in points per game and assists per game as a senior in 2020 over the five games played. And then transferring to Duke for 2021 on that extra year of eligibility, he would leave Princeton as the all-time leading scorer and in a real position here to chase down the all-time points record set by Lyle Thompson, which he is now in the process of doing. 60 points on the year split evenly as 29 goals and 31 assists as he tries to help the current number two ranked team in the country. The Duke Blue Devils make a deep postseason push. Uh, joining me now on GLE, Duke Attackman in the second overall pick of Monday night's PLL College Draft, Michael Sowers. Mike, what's going on, man? Welcome to the show. What's up, man? Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Thanks for joining. Hey, huge season that you're putting together right now. Your team sits atop the ACC and, frankly, the rest of the country at this point at 12-1. and Duke, the number two team, according to Inside Lacrosse, coming off a big comeback win at home against Notre Dame last Thursday, a game that you came up huge at the end for with the two goals to send it to OT and then the assist on the game winner. But these ACC games, man, coming right down to the wire for you guys, of the last five ACC bouts that you've had over the last five weeks, four of them coming down to one goal, and we're expecting and hoping for more of the same this Sunday at UNC. But coming to Duke, playing in the ACC, going against some of the best defensemen and some of the best goalies week in and week out, what did you expect? Has it been more difficult or even easier than what you thought? Can't imagine it's easier, but you make everything look pretty easy out there. And then in wrapping up this season, the last regular season game slated, for Sunday uh, ahead of postseason play. What are you hoping for, and what are you hoping to take out of this game against UNC that you can hopefully take with you going into these next few weeks? Yeah, you know, like I said, first of all, thanks for having me on. I uh, really appreciate it. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, to, to your original comment, you know, like the games have been up to par with, you know, everything you could hope for as a player. Um, obviously getting to compete against the best players week in and week out. Uh, the intensity level in these ACC games, like it's, it's just different. Um, and, and the atmosphere, even with no fans uh, in the stands, you know, you just you kind of feel that intensity. And so, you know, going into to UNC, obviously ACC championship on the line. Um, this is everything you hope for uh, as a player. Uh, these are the games that you kind of dream about playing from the time you're a little kid. And 
Um, I remember watching UNC Duke, uh, you know, when I was in elementary school and middle school and high school and looking up to those guys and now being in a position to, to play in the game myself, especially with uh, the stakes that will be on the line. Um, you know, it's just, it, it's everything that, that you could hope for and, and want as a player. You know, it's just, it's such a cool um, environment and, you know, even practices, different intensity. So, you know, we're definitely very excited about the opportunity. Uh, we see that intensity on the field. We see that intensity on the sideline, whether it be the guys on the sideline, the coaches bringing their intensity. Uh, but, yeah, no fans in the stands. Has that been like a, a weird, I guess, transition for you guys, not just you, but Drew just as, as a team? Yeah, you know, I think uh, originally it was a little bit, and then I think, you know, you kind of get used to it to, to the point where that kind of becomes a norm. You know, I remember playing out at Notre Dame, and they had fans there, and it was kind of like this weird thing where, you know, like you're so used to playing in front of nobody and only getting the energy from the bench and, you know, their bench and now all of a sudden there's fans. Uh, it feels like a whole new atmosphere. But, you know, it's definitely – it's an exciting part of the game, you know, like having fans, having your family in the stands, friends. Um, you know, it's an awesome part of the game. And, like, I think, you know, hopefully on Sunday we should have some fans in the stands. So it, it'll definitely make for a cool atmosphere. Looking forward to that. Excited for that if we're able to get – fans in the stands there for this game, uh, a big game that you got to close out the season here with North Carolina currently ranked number three in the nation. And this one, as you said before, looks like it will crown the ACC champ. So definitely an important one as we get set for the rest of May. And as your team gears up for hopefully a deep tournament run, circling back to your time before Duke, I heard that during your transfer process, you were in the middle of writing your senior thesis in order to graduate from Princeton. I'd imagine a very hectic time for you and the family as you made that decision. And then Early in that process, we heard Virginia as an option. Syracuse was in that conversation, and rightfully so. Some of the other top teams in the country vying for a chance to have you play for them, one of the best scorers on their team. But what went into the decision to bypass the 2020 PLL draft, leave Princeton, and then choose Duke as your next home for the, uh, for the next year? You know, I, I just kind of felt like, you know, I wasn't really done at the college level and also, you know, the opportunity to, to further my education and, potentially get another degree um, it was just something that was appealing to me and then I think also you know just being able to go down and, and meet a new group of guys and learn from a new coaching staff and just kind of throw yourself into to a new environment you know I knew that it, it would definitely be challenging at times but it was something that I felt you know would better me both as a, as a player as a student and then as a person as well so you know, it was definitely, um, you know, talked a lot with my family about it, you know, if I wanted to go play somewhere else. And, and we kind of decided that, that it was just the best decision for me. Hey, the weather down here is pretty nice. I don't know how nice it is in Durham. I'm currently at the University of South Carolina. Weather down here is beautiful. So that, that might have been a reason for it. But definitely uh, playing with the, the upped competition, obviously, within the ACC, one of the ACC is the toughest competition uh, there is in lacrosse. So getting a chance to play in that, immersing yourself in the, uh, the new, with the new team, with the new uh, school, new conference, great stuff there. The Blue Devils, consistently one of the top teams in the country year in and year out. And it looks like with the talent that you guys will have around over the next few years, Duke, except for a few more deep tournament runs. And speaking of that talent, there's a few of it, or I should say a lot of it. Nikai Montgomery, his name was thrown around a little bit ahead of this draft, but that sense that he'll be back for that extra year next year. He went undrafted in Monday night's PLL draft. Owen Caputo also in that midfield. He's still an underclassman, but 16 goals for him this season. Attackman Dyson Williams, he had 17. Freshman Brennan O'Neill, who's the front runner right now for that Freshman of the Year award, he's found the back of the net a team high 35 times. And then you look at the face-off X, Jake Nasso, 
has uh, he's been phenomenal. Just a freshman, he's been one of the best faceoff specialists in the conference. In that in, in a conference that has a ton of good specialists, this Duke squad. Looking ahead, what are you most excited for when it comes to this group moving forward together? You know, I think just the opportunity to to kind of continue to grow. I think that you know we feel we feel as a group that you know our best days are still ahead and. You know, we know that it's late April, but, um, you know, we all feel pretty confident that, you know, our best days as a group are still ahead. And I think that, you know, there's still a level that we haven't reached as a team, um, as an offense, as a defense, as a rope unit that, you know, we feel like we can get to. And, and I think that that makes it exciting every day going out to practice, knowing that, you know, we're not necessarily, you know, working to, to win, you know, you know, games or whatever. You know, obviously that's the end goal, but it, but it's more so having the opportunity to get better. Um, and know that as a group, you know, we can turn this thing up a notch. And I, I think that that's really exciting. Hopefully a, a lot to look forward to here for your team come the rest of April. Obviously April finishing up here, but come May, calling it the May Madness here as we get into uh, conference championships and the NCAA championship. Excited to see what these guys can do here for Duke, what they can continue to accomplish over their time at Duke and obviously into this the rest of the season. And then we'll hope to welcome them into the PLL uh, as well when they're time comes but speaking of the PLL last summer you put us on hold taking that extra year at Duke which you're in the middle of right now to then chase that national championship you were the presumptive number one pick a year ago this year you fall to two uh, to Andy Copeland and the Water Dogs what were those conversations like with coach Copeland as this draft approached and then you find out that you'll be a Water Dog what were those conversations like uh, you know, to, to be honest there was uh, coach Copeland was the only coach that I talked to leading up to the draft um and, okay. and we connected uh once um i think you know like a month or so ago maybe um and you know he's just he awesome guy and obviously heard uh you know a ton of great things from you know former teammate and zach courier um and so you know the, the other night when when i got uh when we saw it on the tv and then i got a, a text from him you know obviously just just super excited and super grateful for the opportunity that you know they would take a chance on me and and allow me to come into the locker room and you know, I know they feel very confident about the group that they have. So, you know, like I said, it's just very grateful for the opportunity and, and super excited to get going after the season. Some phenomenal players that you're going to have the uh, opportunity here this summer to play alongside. Coach Copeland went out and uh, made some moves, some some low-key moves. Obviously, the Atlas made their moves this offseason. The Cannons being the expansion team made their moves. But Coach Copeland, sneaky, making his moves this offseason. He went out and got Ryan Brown for a second-round draft pick. Earlier back in in March, it looked like the biggest steal until he got until he uh, sent a third rounder for Eli Gobrecht on Monday night. But Ryan Brown, a former Tawaratan Award winner, and Ben Reeves, Kieran McCardle, Michael Krause, Wes Berg, already on that Water Dogs attack. Ethan Walker will be joining you on this uh, draft class, and then with names like Connor Kelly, Zach Curry, a guy you just said that you've played with before, Mikey Schlosser, and Ryan Conrad in the midfield. Conrad, the number two overall selection out of Virginia two years ago, who we're still kind of waiting to see used to his full potential here in the PLL. But what's, what excites you most about getting the chance to play with these guys this summer and hopefully for many more summers to come? You know, I think just the opportunity to learn from those guys, you know, like some of the names you mentioned, some of the best best players in the sport. And so, you know, having the opportunity to, to go in there and learn from guys in that locker room and, you know, also just chance to play with guys like Ryan Brown and, you know, Zach, who, you know, obviously I played with when I was a freshman at Princeton. Um, you know, it, it's just super exciting and, and definitely something that I'm looking forward to. 
you're going to be sending feeds to Ryan Brown on one side. We'll have Ethan Walker maybe on another side. Westberg will be somewhere around the crease with the middies up on the arc, expecting big things here from this Water Dogs offense. I know as an athlete and as a guy, just thankful to get drafted. We hear it all the time, guys saying that they don't care where they get picked as long as they get blessed to get the chance with a pro team. I'd imagine that you probably didn't care where you got selected, whether it was first to the Alice or second to the Water Dogs or third to Chrome or wherever you fell on, uh, unless you obviously had a preference coming in, where in that case we'll hope it was the Dogs. But with all the noise around it, your name being one of the bigger ones here in college lacrosse being thrown around at the top of this draft, what did you expect coming into this thing in terms of where you might select it. I know you said you only talked to Coach Copeland coming in, so maybe a little bit of certainty there, knowing that he had that number two pick, but how long you might have to wait, although you didn't need to wait very long. But what was the expectation coming in? Um, you know, I, I wasn't really sure, to be honest. And, and frankly, you know, kind of like you hit on, you know, I was just hoping for the opportunity to be drafted um, and kind of had the mindset that, you know, wherever I went, that would that was what was going to be for the best. Um, you know, everything happens for a reason. And so, you know, I was just kind of like kept that in the back of my mind, you know, like wherever I go, that's what's meant to be. And, you know, that's what's going to work best. And I think that, you know, looking at the Water Dogs roster and just kind of hearing about their locker room and talking with Coach Cove, I think that, you know, it's a great fit. And like I said, you know, I'm just super grateful for them to, to take a chance on me and bring bring myself into their locker room. From talking with all my lacrosse analyst friends here, they're saying you're a perfect fit, not a great fit, a perfect fit here with this War Dogs offense. So excited to see what you guys can uh, put together this summer. The guy selected with the pick after you, JT Giles-Harris, a teammate of yours this past season. He was taken third overall by Chrome head coach Tim Sudan, one of the top pulls in this draft, reflective obviously of how high he was taken the first pull off the board what kind of difference maker did chrome get down low and then in talking with other guys in the league grant amen just one that comes to my mind immediately a guy that you know very well from my conversations with him he told me about how cool it was the first time getting to go against chris sabia a former teammate of his a guy that you'll be sharing the locker room this uh with this summer but how much fun and how cool it was to go up against a guy that he's known for so many years playing college ball with just the you know the chance for it to come full circle playing against him in the pros, obviously, you've only been with JT for just this season, but the chance to go up uh, against him in a game where it really matters with a lot at stake. Uh, your team plays Chrome twice this season in week two and week five, which ironically are the two doubleheader weekends for your team. But getting the chance to go against JT at the pro level, what excites you most about that? Uh, you know, he's he's obviously he's probably the best best ball in the country. Um, and, you know, obviously – just an unbelievable leader and, and, you know, teammate. And so, you know, can't say enough good things about him. And so I think that, you know, when we had that opportunity, it'll just be like a lot of fun. You know, we go against each other a ton in practice, um, you know, every single day in the fall and now kind of spotty here, here and there uh, now that we're in the spring, but you know, it's just awesome. Like as a player, you always want to compete against the best and he is the best and, you know, he has that label for a reason. So, you know, like I said, like going against him, I think, brings out the best in myself and and as a player it's just something you look forward to so it'll be awesome set to make a big uh, impact here for this chrome defense uh in 2021 and as well uh going forward you'll be going up against jt probably at some point whether it's this season or sometime in the future but who are some of the other guys that you're looking forward to getting uh the chance to compete against at this next level obviously grant amen a guy that you know connor Ke or uh but Grant Amen being a guy that you know, who are some other names that you're excited to go up, up against uh, this summer? Uh, you know, I, I don't know about anybody in particular. I think that, you know, it's just it's just cool being a part of it. You know, like you grow up and, 
you know, you, you watch, like, you, you idolize guys like Paul Rabel, Tom Shriver, you know, Kyle Harrison. Um, and now to be able to compete on the same field as them uh, and, and be on the opposite side and watch them, like, it, it's just, it's such a cool experience. I think that, you know, like I hit on the start, these are kind of, those are kind of the moments that as a, as a lacrosse player you dream about, you know, being able to play against your idols one day. And so, you know, that's just like a really cool, really unique opportunity that, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to just to be able to, to be on the same field as some of those guys, you know, really is a dream come true. I was going to say, has it set in yet that you are, by technical terms, a professional athlete, or I should say will be a professional athlete very soon. The NCAA might come knocking on our doors if we jump the gun too soon. But a very small percentage of people on this green earth are lucky enough to say that. And uh, has it set in yet that about in about a month, you'll be a full-fledged pro athlete and then playing it up against these the best players in the world, as you just mentioned? Uh, you know, not really, just because I think that, like, so immersed in the college season and, you know, obviously, like, you're here and like you're 100, 110% focused on, you know, UNC on Sunday. And then obviously, you know, big goals for the month of May. But, uh, you know, like I said, like, I think that, you know, post Memorial Day, hopefully, you know, that's just, it, it's going to be very exciting and something that I'm looking forward to. Post Memorial Day or Memorial Day weekend. I shouldn't say post Memorial Day weekend. We're looking forward to seeing you play post Memorial Day weekend, but Memorial Day weekend. We're also looking forward to see you playing. Hopefully we will get to see you uh, and Duke there come the end of May. My dream growing up, like the dream of, of many kids, was to go pro in some sport, whether it was soccer, or baseball, or lacrosse. But you got that it factor, man. And you showed it against Notre Dame last Thursday, as we brought up before. Big plays and big moments. That's what both the Atlas and the Water Dogs seemed to lack in last year's tournament. And now you end up with the ladder, with the uh, Water Dogs. So an opportunity to continue showcasing those big plays uh, with all the eyes on you. Is that something that you embrace, kind of just while playing, like just being able to score goals late in games, get big assists late in games, make big plays, really when it matters most? Uh, you know, I think so. You know, like I said, it's it's kind of those moments that, you know, as a player, you know, those are what you play for, you know, the big-time moments and the big-time games and being in those ACC games, you know, like you, you hope that it comes down to the wire. You know, obviously it'd be great to, to beat every team by four or five goals, but, you know, the reality of the conference is how good the players are and how well the teams are coached. You know, like, you know it's going to be a dogfight. And so, you know, for, for the team to, to trust me at the end of the game with the, the ball in my stick, you know, like that's that's something that, you know, you work for as a player. And, you know, especially as like an older guy, you know, like I take a uh, a lot of pride in that and, and having the ball in my stick in the end. So, so um, you know, fortunate to, to pull it out. But, you know, obviously just, just a very cool game, very cool moment. Definitely excited to see you through the rest of this spring and then into next summer. Obviously, throughout the rest of this spring, we got uh, UNC this weekend to close out the regular season. And then we're looking ahead to the NCAA championship, expecting uh, a big matchup probably in the first round, maybe an ACC team in the first round. Who knows, depending on how the seeding works out. But then we're, we're expecting ACC or uh, ACC caliber uh, competition then come the uh, those next rounds there of the NCAA championship. So very excited for that. Mike, I want to thank you so much for joining us, my man. Appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. The number two overall pick in Monday night's PLL college draft, Michael Sowers and the water dogs getting ready to run at, get after it in 2021, opening the season June 6th against the cannons. And then obviously, as we've been saying, looking to finish out this spring with Duke expecting to see you out there but if you have other plans for the weekend before and, and for whatever reason can't make it there for week one in Boston I think we'll be all right if you're uh if you're out there playing for Duke Memorial Day weekend 
Uh, Mike, I want to thank you again. Take it easy, and I hope to talk to you soon, man. back to GLE Friday April 30 it seems like April kind of flew by right there just like that we are at the end of the college cross regular season and we're looking ahead to conference championships the Big Ten starting the quarterfinals of their conference tournament this weekend we'll talk about that in a little bit but I hope you're all enjoying the show make sure to like and subscribe if you are whether that's on YouTube or if you listen to the show as a podcast and follow us on social media at GL Extended and at Lacrosse Flash. Big show today. We had Dan Arestia at the top as we looked back at the college drafts of the Atlas, the Water Dogs, the Chaos, and the Cannons. On Tuesday's show, our first of the month of May, we'll look at those other four teams as well as whatever other moves we see before the end of the day as the trade and waiver period deadlines are today. And we'll have a better idea of what these rosters should look like going into training camp on Tuesday. We also just had Duke Attackman, former Princeton Attackman and future Water Dogs Attackman Michael Sowers on to talk about his team's season this year, getting drafted by the Water Dogs on Monday night and what he's looking forward to as we head into the month of May and then the summer and the PLL season and some of the names that he'll be playing alongside and against on this year's PLL tour. Make sure to check that interview out if you haven't. But joining me now to talk some college lacrosse as the regular season wraps up Harrison Silcox welcome back to GLE for what's going to be a pretty busy show as we look back at last weekend's games and then we'll look ahead to this weekend's slate headlined by Duke UNC Syracuse Notre Dame and the first round of the Big Ten tournament but, but uh, Harrison how you doing my man I'm doing good man I'm, I'm I'm so excited this is like the best time of the year if you're a lacrosse fan you get into the conference tournaments next thing you know the NCAA tournament's going on and 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 then it's Memorial Day. I mean, this this part of the year flies by, but it's the best part of the year. So I'm pumped to be here. Very excited about, uh, about what we got going on here in uh, the month of May. We, as you said, we got conference tournaments starting up this weekend. Even then, and in starting into next week, uh, we'll see a few conferences. We'll talk about them a little bit today. But a few conferences set to get their tournaments going. And then, as you're saying, probably come mid-May, we'll have the NCAA tournament going down. Very exciting stuff. And then come June, PLO season. But excited that you are here, my friend. Let's get right after it. I want to start by going to upstate New York, where they're dealing with some bigger problems than what we originally thought was just underperforming on the field and what is an incredibly treacherous ACC. A little background info here. On April 20, Syracuse attackman Chase Scanlon was indefinitely suspended from the program the day following the loss to Notre Dame. And then on Tuesday, it was reported that he had been reinstated, which uh, Coach John Desco took ownership of as his decision yesterday in a press conference, but also on Tuesday and then on Wednesday ahead of Desco's press conference. Rumors were going around that the Syracuse team, led by their captains, threatened to walk out of practice if Scanlon showed up. And we're starting to see a little bit of the reason why as the, the police reports are being released. And we're starting to hear some more about what exactly happened. But Scanlon, as of right now, not traveling to Notre Dame this weekend. He was rumored to be practicing alone with a coach as the investigations look to play themselves out. But Harry, what else do you know as the story unfolds? Uh, I just know that it's really not a good situation for Syracuse. And it's really sad uh, and embarrassing for a lot of reasons, right? I mean, 
obviously Chase Scanlon, whenever you have an athlete or just anybody in general involved in a domestic incident, uh, it's not good. In, in my opinion, it's very unfortunate that he's back with the team. Uh, I do think some things to keep in mind right now that are really important is that there are uh, a lot of different things flying around the rumor mill as far as what the situation is uh, with the coaching staff, the team, uh, the the school, the university, and there's a lot that we don't know about the situation. But what we do know is that Chase Scanlon is under investigation for a domestic incident, and this is uh, obviously not good for him, not good for Syracuse, uh, even worse for the potential victim who's involved. Uh, I'm concerned for a lot of reasons, and honestly, none of it really has to do with Syracuse's program. Uh, for Chase Scanlon, uh, this is a guy, when you think about him, and when he came to this program, was given the number 22. That's one of the highest honors you can get just in college lacrosse in general. Uh, that number has a lot of significance and carries a lot of weight with that program, with the program's legacy, and with alumni. And he has basically taken that number, and you know, as far as right now, in my opinion, he's, he's just kind of dragged it through the mud. And uh, it's embarrassing for him. It's embarrassing for the sport uh, it's, and, and the school as well. Uh, and it's really sad that we're talking about the situation and the university and, and what this means for Syracuse and should Desco be fired. And the sad thing is, is there's a victim here. There's a victim of a domestic incident uh, that's currently under investigation. We really can't say much other than that, just based off of information that we have. Um, but that's really the unfortunate side of it. And the other thing that makes me upset when I see this sort of thing is I think that a lot of athletes or pretty much any lacrosse player and lacrosse coach has a responsibility when they play this sport to represent themselves and their team as best as they possibly can if they want to see the sport grow. There has been so many things that have set back lacrosse over the years and created a lot of negative stereotypes that surround uh, the players and what people believe the sport is about or, or believe the personalities that it brings onto teams. And lacrosse players, I think, if they want to see the sport grow, have a responsibility to not get themselves involved in things like this, to not you know, be wrapped up in a domestic investigation or whatever else it may be, or any sort of controversy, because this is the sort of stuff that garners national attention. And it really brings a lot of negative uh, appearances down onto the sport of lacrosse. And so it's also really unfortunate to see it from that angle. So uh, I'm mostly just upset and embarrassed uh, for the sport. I feel horrible for the victim and also other women who have potentially gone through this or other women in college athletics, because the conversation has turned to what does this mean for Syracuse? And I think it really should be much more important uh, and not just about Syracuse athletics. And, and that's really my thoughts on it uh, to, to sum it up. That's, that's kind of how I've been feeling uh, over, as I've seen the information come out over the last few days. Summed it up very nicely there, Harrison. Appreciate that. Uh, something I kind of compare it to, remember in uh, the Penn State situation when Joe Paterno was fired. I remember in that, or that first press conference that the Penn State Athletic Department, I believe actually the AD was fired as well following that Jerry Sandusky uh, scandal and allegations and whatnot. But uh, I remember Joe Paterno, the first question asked at the press conference was who's going to be coaching the game uh, you know, this Saturday for Penn State. One of the much larger thing going on was Jerry Sandusky and the allegations going on there uh, yep. at Penn State. But obviously, uh, thoughts and prayers out to everybody uh, affected, obviously, by domestic violence and situations like this. Um, you know, obviously, again, this just again, you said it, you put it perfectly. It's not a good look for the sport. Obviously, it's not a good look for the school or the team or 
him as, as an individual, but not a good look uh, for the sport. And as we're trying to grow the game, we're trying to make the make a positive image here for lacrosse. And obviously this, this sets us back, but then you look at it as a, a different light. We're trying to stop situations like this. So I believe the athletic picked up a story not too long ago or within this week, I should say, not, obviously not too long ago being this week, but I believe the athletic picked up a story. So obviously not good for the sport, giving us a lot of bad uh, publicity, but uh, good for trying to end these situations of domestic violence, yeah. putting it out on the forefront. Uh, so definitely good in that regard. But Syracuse most likely going to be without their top goal scorer, though, as we head into May. But right now, as we're saying, that is not the problem for them. They have much larger problems going on as this story develops. But there were questions as to how they handled the press conference, how head coach John Desco handled that uh, press conference. But in terms of the certain rights that athletes are protected by, there's really not much that they can say at this point. So we'll just have to wait as this process plays itself out. More information should be coming out over the weekend and into next week. Inside Lacrosse, Syracuse.com, as well as really any regional newspaper there in upstate New York, good sources to use to follow this story. But Syracuse, without Scanlon, coming off a big conference win against Virginia last weekend, their second win over the Cavaliers this season. They travel to Notre Dame this weekend before their season finale with Robert Morris, a game that they were able to get on the schedule just recently. They're 6-4 and four right now, so even if they do lose these two games, they should still be in line to make the NCAA tournament. But how does Syracuse win this one against Notre Dame, the number four team in the country? Uh, they're they're going to have to uh, bring the offense that they brought to the Cavs last weekend. Uh, but I really think the big thing is that defense needs to continue to play well to keep them in games. Um, and, and Notre Dame is a very unique offense. They've, they kept up well with Duke. They kept up well with North Carolina. They moved the ball very well. Uh, they have guys who can finish inside. They've got Dobson up top who can fire from the outside. And they just, Corrigan has built a, a team of athletes, uh, very strong athletes out there in South Bend. And then obviously it all comes together with, with Pat Cavanaugh in the mix. So that Syracuse defense, they they really need to uh, just really slow down the off-ball ability of Notre Dame's offense, I think is the best way to put it, and, and give Pat Cavanaugh less of a chance to facilitate at high levels. And then Porter's got to make some saves as well. And I, I'm really interested to see if, if Jacob Fopp, uh, how his awesome day at the face-off X from last weekend carries over into this weekend that could be huge against Notre Dame uh, but at times this season uh it, like their first meeting against Duke we've seen Notre Dame lose the face-off battle pretty significantly and still walk away with a win because of how good their defense is so I'd like to see Syracuse if they want to win this one I'd like to see their defense match the intensity that Notre Dame's defense will bring to the game and I think that's very necessary for the Orange to walk away with a win and could very well uh help them almost control their own destiny in the tournament. It's going to be weird when we see the selection committee look at all this stuff uh, in a few weeks with how just schedule tweaking and RPIs and different things like that. Um, but right now, Syracuse ranked eighth in the country. Um, unless there's no upsets in some of these conference tournaments, I, I think that they could squeak in. But again, that's me coming from a place where I don't know how the committee is going to evaluate some of this stuff. And Syracuse has had some, some, some pretty bad losses. Uh, but also sweeping the Cavaliers was 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 good for them. But they they really could use a win against Notre Dame this weekend, and I think they're going to have to rely on that defense to do it. Yeah, no ACC tournament this year really hurting uh, Syracuse really in particular because if you think about it, let's say we're going to be talking about the Patriot League in a little bit, but let's say Army or let's say Navy come out of, of the Patriot League and win that tournament, they get that automatic qualifier. But Lehigh is going to get a spot. Think about yeah. the American East. What if, let's say, Albany – 
they're not the number one team, let's say, in the America East, but they win the America East, you're still going to look at Stony Brook and say, do they deserve a qualifying spot as well? So stuff like that will play itself out as we look into next weekend. But Syracuse and Notre Dame set for Saturday at 12 Eastern on ESPNU. Notre Dame coming off a tough road trip in the Carolinas, back-to-back losses to Duke on Thursday night in overtime. Mike Sowers and I just discussed that one a little bit, and then to North Carolina on Sunday. How does Notre Dame turn it around tomorrow and get back on track? Last scheduled game for them on the regular season here before the national championship. For Notre Dame, I think they got some some much-needed rest during this week. Uh, Denver kind of made this trip earlier, way back at the beginning of the season, where they played Duke and North Carolina in the same weekend, and they hung with Duke. Duke almost lost their first game of the year against Denver, and then Denver went and played at North Carolina, and and they just, I mean, they got demolished that game, and, and we obviously have seen Denver play throughout the year. They're a really good team. Uh, Notre Dame, they they led that Duke game, I believe, 9-3, to three. Uh, and and I really think it started to fall apart for them in the fourth quarter. They got a little bit of sl- they got a little bit sloppy, and they started turning over the ball, which is something that uh, Notre Dame they when you're losing faceoffs and giving the other team possessions, and they're starting to score and they're starting to click on offense. You don't want to turn it over, especially in the clearing game. And then I kind of saw some of those clearing issues pop back up again against North Carolina. And some of the, the turnovers and uh, on the failed clears just were unforced. The guys not catching balls or passes down at, at players' ankles and, and things like that. And so Notre Dame was 16 to 26 uh, clearing the ball in their last five quarters. Their opponents over that same stretch of time are 26 to 27. That's a recipe to lose games. And I think Notre Dame, they hung with North Carolina well. They just seemed to be a little bit tired in that one. The turnovers added up. North Carolina really gave them a tough time in their ride as well. I believe they threw the 10-man ride out there a few times as well. So Notre Dame, they've got to take care of the ball. The Pat Cavanaugh highlights have been there almost every game this year. The offense has been there. Even when they're not winning faceoffs, they've been able to win games. They need to take care of the ball, especially in transition. So they need to get back on track in that game. I'm sure Kevin Corrigan uh, – I. I've never met Corrigan personally. I've seen him on the sidelines. He looks like a very intense coach. Uh, I'm sure practice has been very intense this week for Notre Dame, especially in that clearing game. So I'm interested to see if the Irish are able to take care of the ball well in that department. And it's really going to be important. Syracuse isn't an opponent you can overlook. So uh, Notre Dame needs to take care of the ball if they want to sweep the orange this season. I feel like we think like historically about Notre Dame. It's like, I feel like we always think they're good at clearing. They're good at riding. But this season, as you're saying, kind of struggling in that department. Also in the faceoff, they got two guys recently just drafted. So they're hoping that those two guys uh, step up big here in this one and then into the NCAA tournament. The other ACC game we got for this weekend, the rematch between North Carolina and Duke on Sunday, each coming in off a win against the Irish last weekend and the Blue Devils taking the last matchup in overtime between these two teams. But matchups are you looking forward to watching on both ends of the field? A ton of talent, a a lot of pro talent and future pro talent to be featured for a second time this season. But here for the ACC championship, what matchups are you looking forward to? Uh, last time we did this, it was, it was right before the, uh, the first game between these two teams. And I said, I was looking forward to Michael Sowers, uh, on, on Bowen. And then that matchup didn't happen. So now I'm interested to see, uh, what does Brescia do with his defense? Because, uh, Michael Sowers didn't really score a lot of points that game, or he wasn't the main focal point of that offense. They kind of, 
it, it seemed like at times they were face guarding him. Bowen was over on O'Neal, but the showers, I mean, he's so quick, so he's able to get open. Uh, but it, it was really the, the Robertson, the Joe Robertson game. He had four goals and three assists. Uh, I think he he had the game winner, the game time goal to that game. So uh, does Brushy make any adjustments or is he saying, I'm pleased we held Michael Sowers to a fairly low production. This is in second overall pick in the PLL draft. Some people thought he was going to go first. He's one of the best players in college lacrosse this year. And they only lost by a goal. So does Brushy do anything different on defense? Uh, I'm interested to see what happens there. Uh, as always, I'm, I, I always look forward to watching Chris Gray play. Uh, one thing I'm looking out for in this game, though, in particular, is the second midfield units. Uh, I, I think these two midfield groups uh, are are very deep, but they also, I mean, they've been clicking almost all year, it seems like. With Syracuse, we knew they had a good midfield, but that offense wasn't really quite what we thought it was going to be. With North Carolina and Duke, it's been exactly what we expected to start this season. And in a close game like this, is somebody going to step up in, in one of those second midfield lines? And I'm really interested to see who that might be. So kind of a battle of depth a little bit. And then obviously the goalies, uh, Adler and Krieg, uh, they, they both were awesome in game one. Uh, I'm interested to see how that plays out here uh, in game two. And I think Colin Krieg, I mean, you could argue there, there's a very legitimate case for him being the ACC freshman of the year as a goalie. And I believe in 2019, uh, North Carolina, I can't remember his name. I'm blanking on it right now, but their freshman goalie that year was the ACC freshman goalie of the year. So uh, I think Krieg has been a stud this year for them. And I, there's so many things that you could point out in this game to look forward to. But I'm interested to see Bresci, defensive adjustments. Does he make any of those? Just a battle of midfield depth between these two teams. Is somebody able to get some bench points uh, one way or the other? And then the two goalies, how they play. Colin Krieg uh, coming in here saying freshman of the year. We got uh, we got Brandon O'Neill for Duke. We got Owen Hiltz with Syracuse. Two other freshmen that are going for that yeah, freshman yeah, I mean, of the year as well. Naso too. You, you could argue and him. Jack, yeah, and Naso. Yeah. We're going to have a loaded uh, freshman of the year conversation this year with those four names. But Duke in North Carolina Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern. A network hasn't been announced yet, but expect ESPNU or the ACC network to pick this one up. The ACC championship, the winner most likely to be the two seed in the upcoming national championship. As for Virginia, they are done with their regular season, 10 and 4 and 2 and 4 in conference. I saw pleas on Twitter for them to uh, try to pick up a game, especially with some of the Ivy League teams starting to get back to playing games. So we'll hope to see Virginia maybe next weekend pick up a game, but not sure there. But some other conferences and teams that are wrapping up their seasons. Denver beat Villanova in overtime 11-10 to 10 this past uh, Tuesday. Ethan Walker, a fourth-round pick Monday night by Andy Copeland in the Water Dogs with the game winner. Denver finishes the season 11-3 and three and tied atop the Big East with Georgetown at 9-1, and one, who hosted Loyola last night in what should be the Hoyas' toughest out-of-conference game this season. We're recording this segment ahead of that game, so no score to report, but we'll be back on Tuesday as the Big East standings will be set with the top four teams. Denver, Georgetown, Villanova, and Providence set to move on and play next weekend in the Big East Championship starting on Thursday night with the two semifinals, so we should know those matchups on Tuesday. As for the Patriot League, Lehigh, the number five team in the country, according to Inside Lacrosse. They travel to Villanova following an 18-goal performance in a win over Bucknell last weekend. For Lehigh, a big test as this looks like the toughest out-of-conference matchup for them 
this season. And then as for the rest of the teams in the Patriot League, Army hosts Colgate as they try to secure a spot in the Patriot League tournament. Navy on the outside looking in, coming off a huge win over Army last weekend, held them to just four goals. But Navy heads to Lafayette, a game that they want to win as they approach the Patriot League tournament, which starts on Tuesday. The top six teams make it, so Colgate needing to win over Army to lock up that sixth seed. Loyola plays out of conference and Boston watches this weekend. So we'll talk more about the Patriot League on Tuesday as we'll look ahead to the two quarterfinal games. But how do you see this board playing out with those four teams right now vying for seeding behind undefeated uh, Lehigh? Uh, the Patriot League, I think, is really interesting this year. Uh, I think a lot of these mid-major conferences, uh, if, if you want to call them that, it's, it's kind of weird to call these these mid-major conferences because lacrosse, uh, you, know, you never know what's going to happen. But uh, the Patriot League, there's just some teams that, I mean, like Navy's getting hot all of a sudden. We know that Loyola has, you know, the talent there. And they also have, you know, they're pretty, a fairly senior heavy team. So even though we haven't seen the best from Loyola, like I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them uh, maybe make a run down the stretch here. And I'm really watching the Patriot League super close because uh, of the talent that's there. Uh, also, you know, got to mention Army. Um, and, and you've already mentioned Lehigh, but I wouldn't be surprised if like any of these teams we're talking about come away w- w- with the Patriot League title. Uh, and I believe they expanded and now so it's the top three teams in the North and South division, uh, which makes it even more fun. And if Lehigh doesn't win the Patriot League tournament, you kind of mentioned it earlier, they're still going to get in with, with the resume they have more than likely, uh, you know, ranked fifth in the country right now. So it's really this is really the first conference tournament I look at where it could really shuffle the board a little bit when this selection committee, if if they have to give the AQ to somebody who's not the top seed out of the Patriot League, could really shuffle some things up. So uh, to kind of answer your question on how I think it might play out, I have no idea. And that's the best part about it, I think. Uh, And that's why I think the Patriot League tournament is going to be must watch lacrosse like like. I know we talk a lot about the ACC and the Big Ten this year, um, but seriously, I, I believe all the games are going to be on CBS Sports Network. If you can sit down and watch these Patriot League games, do it. I and mean, there's there's some talent there, uh, uh, defense, face off, attack, midfield, wherever it may be. They're going to be fun games, and I really think that we could see an upset there. I, I if you told me you think Loyola is going to win, I would understand that argument. If you told me you think Army's going to win, I would understand that argument. You go down the list. Uh, so. To, to, yeah, to answer your question, I don't know, but I'm excited. <laughs> Lehigh most likely the heavy favorite, obviously coming in undefeated, but trying to finish their undefeated season this weekend. We'll know the matchups for those two quarterfinal matchups at the end of the weekend, so make sure to tune in on Tuesday's show as we'll be looking ahead to both of those games. And then the semifinals will be held on Friday with the Patriot League Championship next Sunday. Elsewhere in the CAA, Delaware, Drexel, UMass, Hofstra, and Towson continue to beat each other up. Delaware and Drexel running away at the top, it seems, but UMass, Hofstra, and Towson fighting to fill the final two spots ahead of the CAA tournament that begins on Thursday. UMass is a game ahead of Hofstra and Towson in conference. However, they've lost to both of them this month. So Hofstra and Towson owning the tiebreaker over UMass. We'll see how the weekend shakes out. But the matchups we have in the CAA this weekend, UMass at Delaware. So not an easy one there for Jeff Trainer and co. Hofstra hosts Fairfield and Towson will host Drexel. The Tigers on the outside looking in right now. We'll look at the America East. They also kick off their tournament on Thursday. UMBC, Albany, and Stony Brook already clinching a spot 
going into the last weekend of the season. And Vermont will need to beat Stony Brook or hope that Big Empson uh, loses to UMass Lowell this weekend to secure their spot in the America East tournament. We'll have more results on Tuesday as those teams finish up their season this weekend. But Harrison, what are you looking forward to here with some of these uh, America East matchups this weekend? Uh, the America East has just kind of really been uh, a dogfight, I-, I feel like. Um, and, and honestly, a lot of these other conferences have been, you mentioned the CAA a little bit ago, uh, and, and and they have. Uh, but, I mean, just the game on Wednesday this week, Albany-Vermont, I think Vermont swept Albany. Um, but, you know, both of those games were fairly close. So uh, just the America East, I, like, just watch some of these other games in some of these other conferences. I, whether it might, even if it's a, a one camera angle live stream, I mean, they're, they're exciting. Vermont has been one of my favorite teams to watch this year, just with what their mid, like what their highlight real ability brings to the table. Um, so there's just all sorts of stuff to look forward to, but uh, these games do carry some weight, obviously, as we do get uh, close to the, to the, uh, the, the postseason and, 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 conference tournament play here so it does kind of vamp up Uh, I really think that Towson is you mentioned they're on the outside looking in and they they don't really control their own destiny either I think they need some help elsewhere in the conference so uh, just kind of up and down the scoreboard this week I'm interested to watch the America East games just to see where seating ends up Um, but to be completely honest with you I'm just mostly excited to get to the conference tournament games and to see you know these teams in the America East really it's one of those conferences where their only shot to make the tournament is if they win. Uh, And anything can happen in the America East, just like I was talking about the Patriot league. So it's, it's the best time of the year. Watch these games. They're going to be competitive. Guys are going to be selling out. If that's what you like in sports, watch these games. We had Albany and Vermont yesterday or on a Wednesday, excuse me, but really besides that matchup, mainly in terms of, the CAA, or uh, in terms of the America East, excuse me, many top teams taking on the bottom teams there in the conference. So we'll have those uh, really good matchups here in these. Uh, in once we get into this tournament, come the weekend. Let's look at the SoCon real quick. Richmond set to take on Air Force in Jacksonville to take on High Point. The top four teams battling it out as they wrap up their regular season and then look ahead to their conference championship. So a ton of big games to watch and follow with a lot of playoff implications this weekend. And then the Big Ten tournament kicks off this weekend with the two quarterfinal matchups. Ohio State, the four seed after losing both games to Penn State this season. They will host Michigan, who got the five seed by way of a coin toss. And then Penn State, the three seed, they will host Johns Hopkins. Both of those games on Sunday afternoon on the Big Ten Network. So make sure to tune in to those. Harrison, big games for all four of these teams. Obviously, their season's on the line. Johns Hopkins coming off the heartbreaking loss uh, at home to Maryland. Can they bounce back and steal one against Penn State, who they have beaten this season, and then Penn State, on the other hand, big back-to-back wins coming in while Hopkins has draw uh, has dropped their last six. And then the second game of these two, Hopkins and Penn State, winner plays Rutgers. What does Hopkins need to do first to pull this upset, and how does Penn State make sure that that doesn't happen? Uh, to be honest, I think Hopkins, it, w- it was kind of funny. They did a coin flip to break the tie between them and Michigan to see who got the higher seed. Hopkins loses the coin flip, gets the bottom seed in the tournament, but to be honest, I would rather, if I'm Johns Hopkins, be playing against Penn State than Ohio State. Uh, and, and I think Hopkins, if they if they win a game here in the Big Ten tournament and, and they make it to that semifinal, I wouldn't be shocked. Uh, you mentioned heartbreaking loss to Maryland, a tough one uh, to lose at the end of that game. Um, but Hopkins, 
and and two of their last three games, they've hung with some teams that people probably thought were out of their range. They nearly beat Ohio State. They came back down five against Maryland, which tells me a lot about Johns Hopkins, a team that's only won two games on the year. To come back from down five, I think is more. It tells me more than a team being up five, and like we saw Michigan a few weeks ago being up five on Maryland and then gave up 16 straight goals. So maybe Hopkins is starting to figure some things out. If you remember the tournament back in 2019, Joey Epstein, when he was just a freshman, I think he had 14 points in both of those games. They took Penn State to the brink in overtime. And, you know, that was the the Grant Ament year with, with Penn State where uh, they had that awesome Final Four run. So maybe Hopkins put something together in the Big Ten tournament. We saw Epstein do that after kind of a mediocre conference season back in 2019. Milliman, he's upset Yale uh, in the Ivy League tournament before back to his days at Cornell. Obviously, he had Jeff Teed on his team, who was the number one overall pick earlier this week in the PLL. Uh, so Hopkins, maybe they're starting to figure things out and they're hitting their stride at the right time to pull off the upset here. I'm not saying they're going to win the Big Ten tournament, but the talent is there for Hopkins. Maybe the execution is just about there. They just got to put together those four quarters. Uh, and for Penn State, I just got to say, I mean, ride Mac O'Keefe as much as you can. The dude's ridiculous. I mean, just any any sliver of daylight that you can find him, whether it's like a skip pass, feed from down low, whatever. I mean, he's going to bury it low to high, it seems like, every time. Um, so I, I would continue to ride that and then just watch out for for the, the proven guys on Hopkins defensively and make sure, you know, you're, you got your head on a swivel. You're watching passing lanes. Don't let Epstein get going. Connor DeSimone, the guys like that. Uh, I think it'll be a competitive one, uh, and it could really go either way. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a prediction. Uh, I, I think Hopkins is going to win it here. And I, I'm not a Hopkins guy. I'm not, I'm not from Maryland. I'm, I'm from Indiana. I have no ties to John. Nowhere, nowhere near Maryland. But I, I, think, I, think the, I think the Blue Jays might pull this one out, maybe surprise some people after a rough season. The second game here of this Sunday doubleheader. You're going with Hopkins here. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go with you as well. If if I think I like Johns Hopkins in this one, as you're saying, uh, coming in, they've been playing well. It has. It's not like they've been getting blown out here by teams. Obviously, losing by a handful of goals here, but as you're saying, stringing together some nice quarters, some nice halves. We both got Johns Hopkins here in this one over Penn State. And then we got the first game of this Sunday doubleheader, Michigan at Ohio State, the winner to play undefeated Maryland, the number one team in the country. A lot of exciting talent on the field for Ohio State. Ryan Tarafenko, Trey LeClaire, two recent draft picks on Monday night. How much do you think they need to carry this Buckeye team to win on Sunday? Uh a, a decent amount. I think there's other talent uh, on the Ohio State team. I think they're uh, much more well balanced uh, than Michigan, um, you know, with other guys uh, like Jack Myers. But I mean, a lot of people too are tuning into this game to watch Trey LeClaire, uh, Ryan Terrafanko. But uh, there, there is a lot of depth on that team, um, which I think, you know, if they if they're able to spread the ball well, have multiple guys be a shooting threat on offense, I think Ohio State will be in good hands uh, and. And I expect that to happen. I think Tarafanko is a big difference maker on this team. He missed a few games earlier in the season. Ohio State started to struggle. Uh, and then when Tarafanko came back, it seemed like they kind of hit their stride a little bit. Uh, you know, I know they they tied with Penn State, I believe, as far as their record is concerned. But uh, in terms of who I think is better, I think Ohio State is much better than that Penn State team. Uh, so I think that they should be able to handle Michigan fairly well. Uh, but it is worth noting the Wolverines, uh, kind of like what I was just saying about Hopkins, they have come close in a few games. Uh, their senior day, they they kept, they, they, I mean, they hung with Rutgers 
pretty well throughout most of that game. Uh, and, and I think they they need to make the most of their possessions. Uh, Michigan has struggled with turnovers throughout this season. You can't really do that against Ohio State. Uh, and, and a sneaky, decent face-off team in the Big Ten. Their second in face-off percentage the Wolverines are in the conference. I think they're at 55%. Uh, so for Michigan, make the most of your possessions. If you can win face-offs, uh, that's great. But you also have to figure out how to slow down uh, just just some of the versatility that Ohio State's going to bring to the field, and then two pro caliber players who are going to be out there as well in LeClaire and Terrafanko. Do you have a pick here for for this matchup between Michigan and Ohio State? Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be Ohio State uh, by a handful of goals. I think Michigan might hang tough tough with them in the first half. I just think Ohio State's got the experience here. Um, I don't know if Michigan's ever been in a Big Ten tournament. Uh, I, I didn't quite look back at that, but the the as in terms of recent success over the last handful of years, uh, Ohio State has been there, uh, and I don't think Michigan really has. I mean, it's it's easy to forget. I, I believe Ryan Tarafanko was like playing in a national championship game uh, when when he was a freshman. You know, there's a lot of experience yeah. on this Ohio State team. This is kind of a new stage for Michigan, so I think the Buckeyes will take care of business. I'm gonna go with Ohio State as well, but yeah, no, the, I believe this is the first year that all six teams are qualified for the Big Ten tournament, all automatic qualification for. Uh, the conference tournament. So yeah, this might be the Michigan's first season uh, off the top of my head. I'm not sure here in the big 10 tournament, but we are looking forward to this double header, the first round of the big 10 tournament as we wrap up the college across regular season and look to get deeper into conference tournaments next weekend. Again, we'll be back on Tuesday to look ahead to some of those first couple games. We'll see on Tuesday and Thursday. So make sure that you don't miss it. But Harrison, appreciate you joining me, my friend, always a pleasure having you on as we look ahead to a big weekend. No problem, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. That is going to do it for our show today here of Goal Line Extend. I want to thank you all for watching and or listening. If you are not already, make sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube as well as on whatever podcast platform that you use. Search up Goal Line Extended and you should be able to find it. You can also head on over to the Lacrosse Flash website, lacrosseflash.com. All of our podcasts are there as well as some stories and articles covering all the latest news in lacrosse you can also follow goal line extended on instagram and twitter at gl extended all of the links that you will need will be in the description of the video or podcast that you're viewing or listening to right now we will be back on tuesday make sure to check out gl extended on twitter for more and make sure to follow and subscribe so that you don't miss the show i hope you all have an incredible weekend and we will see you on tuesday follow the show on twitter and instagram at gl extended and subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast outlets you can find Lacrosse Flash on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and online at lacrosseflash.com.